This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. Following 9-11, the U.S. government authorized the CIA to operate a program known as Extreme Rendition. Now we know that it involved torturing terror suspects. The North Carolina Commission of Inquiry on Torture was set up to investigate the little-known but critical role our state played in this program. Today, we will talk with a member of the commission and we'll learn what they found. Stay tuned and we'll be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. So glad to be here in the studio again. Glad to be with you all in the <coughs> audience and really happy to be here again with my brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Marcus, how are we doing? An interesting topic. A very interesting topic. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning a lot today. And, I, you know, as we were preparing for the show, I, I told you I couldn't help but think about how this topic kind of intersects with, with conversations that we've had around mm-hmm. the issue of social justice. Yeah. And, I, you know, so part of what comes to mind for me when I think about torture um, in this country's history is that, and I know you know this um, as an American historian, but certainly after the Civil War, after so-called radical reconstruction, we see torture being utilized Mm -hmm. uh, in places like the American South, throughout much of the American South. Um, as a means of what I would consider sort of racialized social engineering, right? right? The, the idea being to, to create, uh, or I should say, maintain a a racial, the same racial caste system that was in existence Mm -hmm. prior to the civil war. Um, and again, one of the primary fulcrums for affecting or bringing about this sort of this 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 social caste system or maintaining it was torture so so to talk about torture within the context of of um, post 9-11 america uh isn't necessarily um a new conversation right. uh once we take a broader historical view that takes into account the experience of african americans after reconstruction right yeah. it, 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 but it uh it, it implies that we have to take that broader a historical Absolutely. view and we're not really inclined to do that that much yeah. in this country so i think about you know we talked about this before you know about it, torture essentially was used to maintain the system of slavery in this country and um and there's something that we have a very hard time kind of going back and actually considering there's so many horror stories that we can talk about with regard to this and people generally you know, or yeah. really kind of run from those from those topics. Yeah. And part of what's so ironic uh, when you think about um, the, the U.S.'s involvement in torture post 9-11 um, is that after World War Two. Right. When we think about uh, what the United States is doing, we you know, with with, you know, with the U.N. around human rights and, you know, being a signatory on documents like the 19, 1967 protocol, which is all about caring about the human rights. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Of, of refugee asylum seekers seekers. Um, we really see, you know, uh, a kind of hypocritical irony right. that comes to the fore when we consider what this what what what. America as a nation state is willing to do post 9-11 right. in the interest of national security, uh, juxtaposing that to this this feigned 
interest in human rights after World War II, which, as you know, was motivated by Cold War politics. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And you and you bring up, you know, the lack of historical awareness about Mm -hmm. these things. I think I'm surprised sometimes when we're having conversations with people. And and in this sense, I think about Brian Stevenson and Mm -hmm. the work that he's doing down in Montgomery, uh, Alabama, but the work that he's done throughout his career around this issue of torture Mm -hmm. and lynching. But and I have run into a number of people who uh, have walked away from it saying, I had no idea. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't aware. And it makes me wonder about our educational system yeah. and, and yeah. how we teach history in this country. So I'm sure that some of this will probably come up in the conversation with our guest today yeah. as we talk about this commission and the work of this commission looking at the topic of torture. So Marcus and I are going to just step away for a minute and we'll be right back with our guest. Well, again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. We're here at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. So glad that you all are in the audience with us with about this uh, having a difficult conversation about torture and the commission of inquiry on torture. And we're so glad to have here in the studio with us once again uh, uh, Attorney Frank Goldsmith. And many here in our local community will know Frank's name. Frank is very active in our community. We had him here uh, a while back. Uh, in an earlier show with uh, Judy Levitt, who is the president of Carolina Jews for Justice West. And Frank is also a member of that organization, looking at the work that they're doing around issues of social justice. But Frank, we're glad and really privileged to have you back here in the studio with us again. Thank you for coming in. Thanks, Frank. It's my pleasure. Thanks to both of you. So I want to just begin with jumping in right here with the the work of the North Carolina Commission on Inquiry on Torture. Um, And and my question is, kind of it's really basic yeah what was the emphasis behind that led to uh, the establishment of this of this particular commission and can you tell us a little bit about who are some of the principal organizers and how you yourself uh, became involved in this particular work sure I'll be glad to address that let me first start by echoing something that you gentlemen identified when we began this program talking about torture in the greater context of American history and social justice. As it happened, I just came from Montgomery, Alabama last week, where I visited Brian Stevenson's uh, projects, the Equal Justice Initiative and the Legacy Museum, and it really brought home how torturous was the regime of slavery and the regime of Jim Crow during Reconstruction and the, the horrors that followed. And there is an element certainly in our torture program that we're going to talk about that targeted people because Mm -hmm. of their ethnic and their racial and Mm -hmm. their religious differences. It was so easy to lock away and forget about and accuse without evidence people who were brown-skinned and spoke funny languages and had a religion different that was poorly understood right. in America. And, and Frank, to some degree, we're still having problems with this today, mm-hmm. right? Is that fair to say? We absolutely <clears throat> are. We absolutely are. So, so I just wanted to begin by acknowledging that. Right, um, so in terms of the North Carolina Commission of Inquiry on Torture, it, it is a non-governmental body. It's a 501c3 organization that was formed in 2015 and really began its work in 2016 and and in 2017. In 2017, we had two days of hearings in Raleigh Mm -hmm. to uh, present the evidence that we had developed 
through the testimony of some 20 witnesses. Um, the commission was formed out of the work of an organization called North Carolina Stop Torture Now, which is based in the Triangle area but really arose in Johnston County where mm. the Smithfield Airport is located, the Johnston, Johnston County Airport. And that airport played a major role in, in what we'll talk about mm. uh, in being an adjunct to the CIA's program of Rendition, rendition, detention, and interrogation—the RDI right. program. Right. Yeah. Now, now, Frank, the commission was set up, as you know, to inform North Carolina citizens of the role that the state played in quote helping to facilitate the U.S. torture program carried out between 2001 and 2009. How has the commission gone about this particular yeah. work? We've gone about it in a number of ways. Um, mm-hmm. We have profited by research that has been done by other organizations, notably an organization in the UK called the Rendition Project mm-hmm. that is headed by Dr. Sam Raphael, uh, and also other good reporting that has been done. Um, Stephen Gray wrote a book called The Ghost Plane, which is seminal in uncovering a lot of this information. The U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence issued a report, part of which was made public. We can talk about that a bit. There's just been a movie released about it. Uh, it, But that had a lot of good information, too. So there have been a number of sources, a number of documentary sources. And then we were able to reach out to witnesses in various fields um, and ask them to come and testify before the commission. These are witnesses from uh, mm-hmm. the military, from intelligence services, from medical services, from religious uh, backgrounds, uh, mental health, um, and so on. And so we had those two days of testimony to receive uh, their information. I think, Frank, what I'm amazed by is I can, as I listen to you here and even in your opening comments and talking about Johnson County, of how much goes on around us that we're unaware of. I mean, it, you know, I lived in the Raleigh area for 20 years, over 20 years, and Johnson County, I know very well, an, an, an interesting history that the county itself even has. So it does. It's, yeah, so it's interesting to hear you bring up, you know, just Johnson County and maybe its role in this. I'm interested in hearing, Frank, you had these two days of hearings, you had these witnesses. What did you all uncover? What did you learn? Well, we we learned specifically about North Carolina's involvement that, in fact, the state public infrastructure of the state and people and corporations who are are from the state or live in the state or are based in the state really were instrumental in carrying out this program of rendition for torture. And by that, I mean that um, there were two aircraft that were based in North Carolina. One was a Gulfstream 5 business jet that was uh, based out of the Johnston County Airport. It had a tail number originally of 9379P. The tail numbers tended to be changed over time for reasons we can speculate about or that we know about. And then there was another larger aircraft, a Boeing 737 jet that was based out of the Kinston Airport, which is not that far away. It's the Global Transpark in North Carolina. That had a tail number of N313P. And again, that tail number was changed over time. Together, those two aircraft accounted for some 80% of the renditions carried out by the CIA overseas between September of 2001 and March of 2004. So they were 
they were instrumental. They were critical. They were absolutely necessary to the effective carrying out oh, of that program. Yeah. Wow. 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 And, 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 yeah, it's, it's, this is just this is really really um, this. Um, you know, Marcus, I, you know, to consider, I know it? you, you, you kind of get at a loss for words, and, I, and I'm <laughs> listening to Frank and talking about till numbers on planes, and I'm thinking, this sounds like a movie. Yeah. yeah you know, it, but it, you know, as they say, truth is stranger yeah. than fiction yeah. sometimes, yeah. but to think about that yeah. again. Yeah. yeah. And and so two, two kind of related um, questions that I have, Frank, um, building on what you just said and building on Darren's um, previous question. What has the response of state officials been to what was revealed in these hearings? And then secondly, is it possible to hold anyone accountable for, for what has happened? And if so, what, what might that look like? Um, Those are two excellent questions, and they are things that the commission itself and other organizations like Stop Torture Now have sought to to address and to carry out. So in terms of state officials' response, it's been very disappointing. Hmm. Uh, I will tell you that, in fact, some eight days ago, there was a Democratic fundraiser in Raleigh, um, and members of North Carolina Stop Torture Now, some of whom had also been associated with the Commission of Inquiry on Torture, uh, took some leaflets and handed them out at this fundraiser for Democratic candidates and handed one, in fact, to Governor Cooper. Um, and once again, there was just a very uh, unenthusiastic reception. He said something about, uh, well, I appreciate your enthusiasm for your cause or your passion for your cause, but it's not our cause only. It should be the cause of justice in this state. So we have repeatedly, for example, at these hearings that we held in in the fall of 2017, we expressly invited the governor, the attorney general, former governors, Easley and Purdue and McCroy, Johnston County officials, the airport officials, uh, a number of people representing these agencies and institutions to come address us, to tell us what their side of the story was, what they had to say. None of them came, none of them even sent representatives. Uh, I have gone to the governor's office and to the attorney general's office with members of the commission. We've met with lower level staff members. We've presented our report to them. Um, We've begged them to take some action to investigate what our state has done that violates international law, federal law, uh, state law as well and uh, all to no avail. So the response has really been to be um, just to turn a blind eye to what has been done. Right. So resistance here. There's a, a wall of resistance, it sounds like. I'm interested in, you know, you, you know, Marcus raised a point, uh, the question about public officials. How's the general public responded? And is the general public, are you, do you feel that you've been successful in disseminating your, the, your findings and the work of the commission to the broader public? And is there still work in that area to be done? I, I think there is a lot of work yet to be done. I think the commission is not well known. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's probably poorly understood. We published a fairly lengthy, detailed report of our findings and of our recommendations for action. We've done our best to disseminate that. It's available on the web. Mm-hmm. Um, if if your listeners go to www.nccit.org and scroll down you'll see a picture of the report you click on that and it'll take you to the actual report but i think um 
by and large, the public has not been that responsive. And I think part of that, frankly, is for the reason that I addressed at the beginning. Mm. I think it is so easy to ignore uh, clear violations of the law. And and these are absolutely clear, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. Uh, when they're committed against people that we don't have a stake in defending. You know, as Mm -hmm. I said, these are foreign people. They are suspected of terrorism. Never mind that most of the ones who were detained and seized uh, were innocent of terrorism. The CIA itself has admitted that a substantial number of the ones they kidnapped, they just simply got the wrong person. and, and I, it's hard to get the public to be very sympathetic, I think, because of the nature of who these people were and because of their belief that it's necessary to stop terrorism. Right. And, and Frank, this is, you know, not in keeping with who we say we are to Which be, or hope to be as, as a country. And I feel, Marcus, and I feel that we're, we're constantly trying to, re, to take people back to those first principles, those first, those original ideals of what we, of who we said we were. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, I was thinking the same thing, mm-hmm. brother. Um, so, so Frank, so, so in addition to so, to making North Carolina citizens aware of this state's role in the rendition program, I'm curious to hear about other goals that the that the commission may have, and um, and and how the and, and where you are, and sort of in the in the attainment of those goals. Uh, so, part of our advocacy, our ad- advocacy really is at three levels. It's at the federal government, the state government, and then the general public. Mm-hmm. At the federal level, we would like to see the federal government declassify uh, most, if not all, of the 6,700-page report that was issued in 2014 by the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. All we have of that report is 525 pages, which constitutes the executive summary that was declassified. There is a wealth of information. That report covered, by the way, there's just been a movie released about the report. I think it's showing here in Asheville very soon. It's going to be available for streaming as well, called The Report. And it it deals with that report, um, and it deals, I think, with the efforts to block its release. And those efforts came not only from members of the Bush administration, but from the Obama administration. President Obama was very resistant to allowing the release of any part of that report. Our senator, Senator Burr, who, as you know, chairs mm-hmm. this intelligence committee, uh, was totally resistant to it. Um, in fact, copies that had been issued to other uh, public officials were recalled. Um, so we would like to see that uh, that, port de- that report declassified and released. We would like to see um, U.S. attorneys uh, at least consider investigating and prosecuting people who violated federal law. We have a torture act in our federal laws um, that expl- ex- expressly uh, makes criminal the conduct that occurred here. Mm-hmm. And we would like our state officials to do the same thing, to perhaps convene an investigative grand jury, to convene a governor's panel to investigate and see whether there were violations of state law. And I think it's, there's no question right. that there were. So, Frank, why why are people so re- resistant to just, yeah, yeah. to just, <laughs> yeah. you know, having this conversation? What, yeah. what, what accounts for that, in your opinion? It, it's hard to say what really accounts for it, what we are told is that uh, people point fingers in the opposite direction. For example, when we talk to the state officials, they'll say, well, this is a federal program. We don't have any business investigating the federal government. Mm. 
they really do if there's a violation of state law involved. And the federal government, of course, with the current administration, it is unlikely that there's going to be any serious effort at prosecution. Mm -hmm. I think they're just very protective of what they did. I mean, even President Mm -hmm. Obama famously said that he wanted to look forward and not back and did not want to prosecute people who engaged in torture. President uh, Trump, just in the last few days, has pardoned three servicemen who engaged in horrific war crimes, um, one of whom had not even gone to trial yet, Major Goldstein. Uh, He is alleged to have murdered a captive in violation of international law. Did he or did he not? I don't know. We don't know because he was pardoned before he could even be brought to a court-martial. And so the facts have not been developed. So we we meet resistance at all levels and really across all administrations in trying to get to the truth of this. So, uh, Frank, what, in your opinion, what is what does this do to our image globally? I, I think that is one of our findings in, mm-hmm. in our report. I think it, is, it has had disastrous consequences, not only for our image, but for the actual working of our intelligence services, for our ability to cooperate with other nations. It is interesting that other countries have initiated their own prosecutions um, uh, and their own investigations uh, where it is clear that international law was violated. Um, and the United States, which is supposed to be this beacon of liberty to the world, mm-hmm. has failed to do anything about it. And so I think our image has suffered. I think our ability, when it became known that the CIA operated black sites, and that's their term for the 10 prisons in Poland and Romania and Thailand and Lithuania and Afghanistan, uh, when it became known that some of those countries were harboring these black sites where torture occurred, carried out by our government, uh, there was a great outcry in some of those countries. They didn't like that. And that mm-hmm. our image suffered and our ability to work with those governments, I think, has suffered as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think part of what this demonstrates um, is is the the United States' willingness to operate outside the boundaries of international law and even its own law um, in situations like um, like what happened, you know, on 9-11. I think that's an important thing for, for listeners to understand and for us to, to unpack. But um, I'm also curious to hear from you, Frank, um, a little bit about uh, the long-term goals of the commission. Do you see this as a, as a, as a long-term processual project um, or, or do you see it as, as something that, that kind of has an end date that's rapidly approaching, what do you think? Well, I think to answer that question, um, and I may want to go back and address um, something else that occurred to me about uh, mm-hmm. the hypocrisy involved in, in mm-hmm. what we are doing to carry this out. But yes. the commission itself has pretty much ended its work. We published oh. the report. Mm-hmm. We had the two days of hearings in 2017, and then in September of 2018, we published this fairly lengthy report. And since then, we have been simply trying to disseminate it, but uh, we have uh, you know, we were funded by contributions and grants, and so we have uh, we don't have a staff anymore to do that. It's just the members of the commission are talking about it and doing their best to to get the word out. What I wanted to say that uh, your your question brought to my mind uh, about our values and about our not adhering to long held values. I served in the army during the Vietnam era, and one of my duties was to instruct 
uh, infantry troops and their commanders on the law of war. And I used a military manual called The Law of Land Warfare, FM 27-10, still in existence today, and it expressly prohibits torture. I mean, it is a bedrock principle of our military operations that we do not torture. It is also embedded, of course, in our statutory law. But it is just appalling to people like me who have served in the military and who have taught troops and have been taught that we conduct ourselves to a certain standard. We don't do what other people do. Mm-hmm. That to see that abandoned and then to see soldiers who violate that principle pardoned by the president um, without any accountability, uh, then right. it, it, where are the boundaries? All right. mm-hmm. I, Frank, I'm curious as you, as you were talking here as we come down on the last couple of minutes here. Senator John McCain, did, did you – did you all ever have a chance to kind of engage him in conversation on this? And if so, was there a response? I, I wish we had, but we did not have a chance to engage Senator McCain. I would love to have heard what he said. The introduction to our report is written by Alberto Mora, who is a distinguished professor and former general counsel of the Navy. And and he as he begins that introduction to our report, he says the flags are flying at half-staff today because of the death of Senator McCain, and he goes on to talk about how he would be appalled at uh, and was appalled at, at what went on by our CIA and uh, is uh, is is there any uh, uh, sympathetic ear in the Senate or a nationally a national political leader that people would recognize now that uh, uh, John McCain is no longer around? You know, that's a good question. I, I wish I could identify yeah. someone like that. I mean, surely among the senators we have someone of courage who could step up and and do that. But I don't know who that would be. Right. Uh, it certainly is not a topic you hear on the campaign trail, mm-hmm. uh, right campaigning now. on torture. It just doesn't get votes. All right. Well, Frank, I, I want to thank you again for coming in. I, it, we really have just scratched the surface here again. Thank you for the work that you're doing here. And we will you uh, get the website out again when Marcus and I have an opportunity to do that. And we want to thank you for being here. Marcus and I will be back in a minute. Thank you. Well, again, Marcus, you know, I, and I, um, that conversation kind of blows my mind, oh, you know, man. thinking about it and yeah. the, the depth of the work that uh, that Frank and his fellow commissioners have done. I wanted to ask him who were some of the other commissioners yeah. who were involved uh, with this work and if there would be people that we would recognize, names that we recognize across the state. But this mm-hmm. is this is a massive effort. It right? is. It is. And for me, you know, one of the the, the most piercing question that I'm left with after hearing um, um, Frank talk uh, is what are American values? What are they really? Um, what are We've they, been debating that yeah, for a long time. What are they right? grounded in? Mm-hmm. And, and what was it specifically about 9-11 that led to um, this very blatantly hypocritical abandonment mm-hmm. of values that are publicly espoused, publicly championed, publicly embraced by 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 those in power in America. Right. You know, Marcus, I think about mm-hmm. historically the country has been through difficult periods, very some major difficult periods. I can't help but think of the American Civil War and the contentiousness of that. But you know, is there a Lincoln-esque figure? You know, to uh, 
it, it I, you know, we, we've lost mm-hmm. something in our leadership here. Uh, we mentioned John McCain in that last uh, in that last segment with with uh, with 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 Frank. Um, you wonder who is the voice who will be the champion for bringing us back to those first principles and those values. Yeah. And then to think about um, the reticence of our of, of our political leaders to even deal with right. the rendition program. It is. Yeah. I mean, and, and the public. But I also want to go back to and, and, and mention the general public mm-hmm. and the role that we have here in being engaged. I mean, the information is out there, the work that the commission has done mm-hmm. uh, and the report. And I hope that our listeners will take the time to go get the report, mm-hmm. to go look at the p- report and read it. Um, we need to be more engaged. I mean, yeah. I again, Marcus, I go back to the conversation conversations that we've that and the work that I've been doing with the with the Institute for Emerging Issues at North Carolina State yeah. University and the need for Amer- for North Carolinians to be more civically engaged. Yeah. Well, this is yeah. a part of that work, yeah. right? Going to this. So I hope people will do yeah. that. So Marcus and I want to thank you all for joining us again and for being here. We want to thank Frank for being here as well and for the work that he's done uh, with this commission. Marcus and I want to remind you again that the Waters and Harvest show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Nashville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on Apple Music and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. And Marcus and I will look forward to talking with you next time. Take care.